We're going back to Las Vegas for a case that has it all. Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. We've got a $2.5 plus million dollar heist. A murderer. Drugs. Fugitives. And the woman who once held the number three position on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, making her the highest ranked female criminal on the list since it began in 1950. If that's not enough, the lady in today's case also made it into dedicated episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, Dateline, and America's Most Wanted. Heather Catherine Tallchief was born in the Kensington Bailey area of Buffalo, New York in 1978. Her parents were a couple of teenagers who, as her dad explains it, had sex in high school, which was a mistake. Heather's mom got pregnant, and he says that he didn't understand because he didn't even know how women got pregnant. I really thought you were going to have something to say about that. I was processing that I couldn't, I can't. Yeah, this wasn't a, a happy little accident type situation. I mean, this was, he just called it what it was. It was a mistake. So not long after, uh, Heather's parents split up. That's probably not so surprising. When she was about two or three years old, and Heather stayed with her father afterward. But her dad has said he wasn't exactly prepared to be a father. Heather's childhood wasn't, wasn't really a happy one. She described people drinking, doing drugs, and fighting in her childhood home all the time as different people kind of came and went. In the show Heist on Netflix, Heather's dad talks about smoking weed laced with formaldehyde on purpose and how the heroin addicts were telling him that that was bad. I'm pretty sure if a heroin addict tells you something is bad, uh, you should probably listen. He compared it to horse tranquilizers and said... At the end of the day, he just wanted to get high at all costs. Her dad also describes how he met who I guess you could describe as Heather's stepmom. And this is how he describes it. One day we're hanging out, drinking and partying. This girl, Cindy, she liked what we were doing, you know, getting high all the time. And she fit right in. She need a place to stay. And I said, hey, you can stay here and help me watch my daughter. And she never left. Yeah. Unfortunately, Heather said that Cindy resented her and made it abundantly clear that she didn't like Heather. I mean, saying downright awful things to her, like, even your own mother doesn't want you, and just generally being awful toward her. Growing up without legitimate affection or unconditional love in a house where drugs and alcohol were in constant use and all sorts of people were coming and going took its toll on Heather and would ultimately lead her down a dangerous path. At 17 years old, Heather left New York to live with her mom in California. Heather's path seemed to be kind of writing itself, taking a, a good turn as she became a certified nursing assistant. And, and then she was working in, in a place where she was treating AIDS and cancer patients uh, in a hospital-like setting. However, as you can imagine, that, that's a really heavy job, helping people manage that transition between life and death and seeing the pain and, and witnessing people pass on a regular basis. It's a lot for anybody to handle, especially a young person. And Heather, she didn't handle it so well. She turned to cocaine as a coping mechanism. Eventually, her habits would spiral, and she was ultimately fired. Her world was crashing down around her, and that's when she met a man named Roberto Solis. Back in the early 90s, San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district had transformed from a once-funky hippie haven to a, a darker and more troubled area. This is where Heather met Roberto in a bar in 1993. He flirted with her and asked if he could buy her a drink. She agreed. Heather had just turned 21. She was barely old enough to even be in the bar. Uh, Roberto, on the other hand, was 48. The fact that he was more than twice her age hardly was the most notable thing about him. He was, by all measures, a poet, career criminal, and a convicted killer. Roberto Solis reportedly used somewhere around a couple dozen aliases, but his pen name 
was Pancho Aguila. How do you say that? You're the, you're the expert on uh, sure. accents. Sure, yeah, why not? All right, this is we're going to go with, and I apologize to everybody because I'm probably not saying that right. According to the back cover of a poetry book that he published in 1977, Pancho was born in Nicaragua in 1945 and came to San Francisco at the age of two. He began writing poetry around the Blue Unicorn Coffee Shop readings in Haight-Ashbury in 1966. His poetry skills would prove more useful than you could possibly imagine. See, in 1969, Roberto was arrested after a botched armed car, armored car robbery. That all went down at a Woolworths store in San Francisco. Bob, um, I imagine a lot of people here probably have no idea what Woolworths is. You want to fill them in? Well, Woolworths was a drugstore. I don't know if they still exist anymore. Definitely not the way that they used to. They were everywhere. And uh, they, they usually had like a soda fountain or a cafeteria in them as well. And it wasn't just medicine in those places and your bathroom things. Shoot, they had clothes and home accessories and a little bit of everything. So this is kind of like, uh, I mean, you said like sort of like a mini department store, maybe like a precursor to a Dollar General or something. I mean, what, what do you think? Eh, sort of, but, you know, they did have medicines and they did have a pharmacist there. And of course, like I said, they, they had usually a lunch counter or a soda fountain or something of that effect. Mm, the days of yesteryear. So Roberto and two accomplices approached the driver of one of Loomis's armored cars. The driver's name was Louis Dake, and he had showed Roberto that his money bag was completely empty. He even turned it inside out to show him, like, hey, I don't have anything. But do you know what Roberto did when Louis showed him that? Roberto shot the father of six in the back two times. Roberto murdered Louis Dake. When Keith Morrison asked a former FBI agent on that case what Roberto's actions said about him as a person, the agent responded, that brings up some pretty deep questions about his attitude towards life and death and the seriousness of his violence. Roberto was ultimately sentenced to life in prison for Dake's murder. He would briefly escape prison and be recaptured. And then after spending nearly two decades of his life sentence in California's Folsom prison, he'd figured out another way to escape, at first metaphorically, but then literally. In prison, Roberto authored five poetry books and was included in many anthologies. His publications got a lot of attention, even from respectable and prominent literary minds. Roberto's writing led accomplished poets and artists to petition the California Parole Board to grant Solis leniency. According to uh, an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, these other writers pointed to Roberto's writing talent as proof of his rehabilitation. Indeed, prominent writers and publishers were so impressed by Roberto's writing abilities, they wrote letters to the Parole Board in the 1980s claiming that Roberto was a changed man and his writings proved it. So, after serving about two decades of a life sentence for murder, Roberto was granted parole and was given another bite at the apple. I mean, leave it to California to let the brutal murderer out of prison early because he a good poet. But what do you expect from a state that elects retired Madame Tussauds exhibits as congresspeople? <laughs> uh, now that we know who Roberto is, let's get back to that fateful night when he met Heather in that San Francisco bar. Heather was smitten. She admits that she thought that Roberto was attractive, and he used some unusual pickup lines, asking her questions about the devil and, and just odd things that really kind of stuck out, stuck out to her. Next thing she knew, she was checking out his homemade altar back at his place. Wait, 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 wait. Homemade altar. I, I, so if I ever went back to a chick's place and there was an altar, I have a sudden case of uncontrollable diarrhea, and I'm getting the hell up out of there. Feet don't fail me now. Are you, there was an altar in his place? Did, oh dear Lord. It gets better. 
Yeah, so Heather has described it as, quote, spectacular, featuring a goat's skull with candles, incense, and crystals. There were also two uh, chalices or fancy cups. One was filled with red lip liquid, and the other had a white liquid. Heather said that Roberto told her that the white liquid was goat's milk, and the red one represented blood. I don't know what was in there, but it represented blood. Skulls, red liquid, representing blood. You, you hope it's just representing it. And she don't get up out of it. Like, she did not turn and run. Like, I hope this was a once and done kind of date. Like, I'm done with you, but I, maybe there's got to be more. We wouldn't be, you wouldn't be telling me about it. Yeah, and uh, I think maybe kind of, the for me, one of the things that st stood out about this, I mean, it's weird. It's all weird, but um, he kept the altar in his living room. In the living room. Well, I don't know. I'd be pretty afraid that would turn into a dying room. Right. And, and in case you're wondering, the red liquid was supposed to represent menstrual blood, with the idea being that it was uh, uh, about women giving birth and life, creation, fertility, etc. And the milk, uh, this goat's milk, was representing this uh, milk that's needed to sustain, uh, to, to sustain and, and nurture life. Now, I'm guessing that you or me, as you said, would have made our way to the exit pretty quickly. Uh, but Heather was intrigued by all of this. So she took the next logical step for somebody who was intrigued, and she let Roberto read her tarot cards. This dude, like, worshiping menstrual blood? Guys run from that like the plague, and he's and let him read her tarot? No, the only card I'm playing is my card ass going straight out that door. Now, in case you haven't picked up on this yet, Roberto is pretty good at getting people to do what he wants them to. He's decent with words, and despite being much older than Heather, she was quite attracted to him. Toss in this quasi-weird, spiritual, New Age mysticism stuff, and this thing just spells on full-out disaster. I mean, he, he reminds me of the cult leader type. You know, maybe not all the way to Jim Jones, but certainly somewhere along the Manson, uh, you know, trajectory of weirdos. It was certainly someone I, I listened to and I obeyed and I respected. So I, if he said to do a certain activity or a certain thing, I followed through. Now Heather's tarot reading turned up a fortune and the temptress or lust card. She believed she was supposed to embark on some sort of a spiritual journey, an awakening or an enlightenment by somebody great and powerful and knowledgeable. Yeah, and what you know, she had just the right guy there next to his goat skull. Yeah, Heather described all of this as very moving. She was really wrapped up in it. You got any idea what form of spirituality they were practicing? Uh... No, I, I don't want to know. I'm still bothered by, you know, like you hear women that will date guys or be in a relationship with guys or be looking for a relationship with guys that go, ah, no, he's only 5'11". I really need somebody 6'1". Or he's got that funny mole or he makes noise when he chews. Those are all deal breakers, but a <laughs> altar is moving and period blood. No, 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 no. Crazy. I mean, I don't agree with you. It's, it's, it's definitely out there, and I, I would have just turned around and left. But they refer to this, and I looked it up. There's a Wikipedia page, so I guess it's real. Um, she, she said they referred to this as something called sex magic, uh, sometimes spelled with a K on the end of magic. My understanding of this in the very brief time that I spent looking into it is essentially some people believe they can use sexual energy to manifest ideas. In other words, they're able to make something happen because they think about it during sex. So they're sex magicians like David Copperfield or Harry Houdini. <laughs> I, I guess you could say that. But frankly, like you said, that's enough talking about sex magic. It's uh, 
no disrespect to any listeners who might practice that. But uh, when you started talking about the sex magic thing, I thought you were going to tell me they were just really into Molly. But this is <laughs> poof. Right. So what matters and why we have to include this whole bit about this stuff in the story is because this is a big part of what drew Heather into Roberto's orbit as as kind of sad as it is. And like you pointed out, you know, often um, <laughs> you would think there were many deal breakers present here, but there weren't. But this mystical different thing really piqued her curiosity as a 21 year old. And, and, you know, let's not forget, she had a rough childhood and she said herself that spending her whole youth without steady love and attention left her craving that. And, and here was a man who knew just what she was looking for, maybe even preyed upon it, right? And after a couple weeks together, Roberto told Heather about his time in prison and how he had killed Louis Dake in 1969. But Heather, you know, kind of all wrapped up in this stuff, head over heels and just seeing this man, Roberto, as, as maybe a father figure that she wished she had had as somebody who was pouring into her in a way that she hadn't had before. She just believed it was an accident. It was an unfortunate thing and Roberto regretted it. And she also believed that he had changed. He was different now. And she admits that she was in love with him, so it just didn't matter. So she's infatuated and in love with this satanic psycho. Why do I suspect this is going to take a left turn real quick here? Yeah, your spidey senses are pretty accurate. Heather has said that Roberto made her feel like a queen. So when Roberto suggested that they move to Las Vegas, Heather was probably ready to follow him anywhere at that point. And this is pretty well made clear by her retelling of uh, one day she got a call from him and he told her, you know, be ready to go, get some clothes and, and be ready. I'm, I'm coming over. He wouldn't give her details. So she goes down and get in the car and they head to the back of this mall. And he tells her to wait in the car with the key, be there, be ready to go. And he goes inside and commits a robbery and comes out with a lockbox that had $30,000 and a Rolex inside. She was kind of like just following him to whatever they were doing, however they were going to do it. She even described them sort of Bonnie and Clyde-esque, like she was just down for whatever. Now, Roberto wanted Heather to find a job. He's not going to work, but he wants her to find a job. And he even brought home applications for her to fill out. And she didn't think anything of it when he nudged her toward armored car services. And she didn't think anything of it. Is she that dumb? I, you know, we, we got to remember, she's really young here. And I don't know about you, but when I was really young, I was kind of stupid. So I guess we'll give her some credit that she's brainwashed because she was starving for attention and affection. And, and this little serpent just slithered right up in there and got in her head. So I'll cut her some slack for that. But come on. Didn't think anything about him wanting me to go work for an armored car service, even though he just stole 30 grand and a Rolex. Right. Exactly. Well, and I had actually killed a guy who was an armored car driver right. in the past. Yeah, right. Um, and, and, you know, ironically or not enough, the application that he encouraged her to fill out was to work for Loomis in Las Vegas. Oh. Heather just didn't, she, she didn't make the connection. And I think now she would recognize, like, that was pretty naive. But she submitted her application to Loomis. They called her, did an interview, and gave her the job. Guess they didn't ask nothing about no alters. Heather was a bit surprised because she didn't feel qualified. And frankly, she wasn't qualified. She had just gotten her first driver's license not long before this, maybe a couple months. Uh, but there she was, driving an armored van or truck around Las Vegas, transporting millions of dollars to and from various destinations. What could possibly go wrong? Roberto seemed pleased, and like any good boyfriend, he asked her plenty of questions about her days at work. <laughs> yeah, like, what day do you pick up the most money? <laughs> right. Fast forward to October 1st, 1993. Heather worked at Loomis for less than two months. That morning, Roberto had some instructions for Heather. 
She was supposed to drive the armored vehicle from Circus Circus, in case you don't know, that's a casino in Las Vegas. Uh, so she's supposed to drive from Circus Circus to a place that he mapped out on a little piece of paper. He made her memorize it, and then she wasn't allowed to take it because to his credit as a dirtbag, uh, he's pretty good at being a dirtbag. He's thought about this a lot. Probably the two decades he spent in prison for murder, he planned all this out. She used to drive this vehicle loaded with $3 million out of the parking lot down the street to an empty warehouse that had a sign outside that said something like armored car servicing. It's a sign that Roberto had put up. See, he had rented this empty warehouse because it was the perfect place to make an exchange. It wouldn't raise any unnecessary suspicion, and it provided a perfect cover for the couple to move the cash and prepare their getaway. Heather's job required her to drop off two other Loomis employees who would go collect cash in the casino. Her job was to drive around to another exit where these employees would eventually rejoin her in the armored car. So she drops them off as usual. They go in. They make their collections. They don't, you know, they're just doing their thing. When they come outside at the pickup point, Heather is nowhere to be seen. These other Loomis employees initially assume she just got lost or maybe she went to the wrong door. In follow-up interviews and different things, they've said she wasn't a good driver. She even used both feet to drive the truck. And <laughs> they frequently got, got a rise out of how bad of a driver she was and how poor she did at this job. They thought the only reason she got hired was because she was attractive. But as time went on, they started to suspect something more serious may have happened. And Initially, they thought, well, maybe she was in an accident or, or something like that. Or maybe the sex magician done rubbed a lamp and made her disappear. And that would be closer to what actually happened. Heather was indeed heading to go see Roberto at the warehouse. And when she got there with the Loomis vehicle, Roberto's tone was a bit different. He was more stern. He told her to get out. And the very next thing was to give him her gun. So she gave him the gun. And some of this tone Heather attributed to him being in a panic. In the moment, she thought he's just excited and worked up. You know, we have to move quickly. So she, she did what she was told, and she hurried up. They packed the money. They got it into a car that was there in the warehouse, ready for them to leave. But this much money, you know, people don't think about it. But it weighs a lot, and it takes up a lot of space. So just packing it and moving it from the Loomis vehicle to the car would be a lot of work. And Roberto was, was gruff, barking at her to change her clothes as they finished packing the car. She put on a gray wig and contact lenses that made her eyes a different color. He had her ride on the front passenger floorboard ducked down as much as possible so the helicopters flying overhead wouldn't see that there were two people in the car. They made it to an airport and Roberto opened up the trunk of his car and pulled out a wheelchair. He told Heather to get in it and pretend to be sick, to act like an old lady. Heather was wheeled over to a small plane and helped into it. and They were taking this small private chartered plane. Heather said that uh, she was absolutely devoid of feeling during all of this, that she was numb, that it really hadn't set in yet exactly what she had done and, and the ramifications of her actions. Now, instead of taking the money, again, about $3 million on this small plane with them, it was put into these brown cardboard boxes, like moving boxes, and they shipped it to a secret location to be retrieved later. And at this point, Heather said she felt differently about Roberto. This was the, the moment in time where she started to kind of wonder or question him a little bit. And maybe it was his tone or his demeanor, just the way that he kind of flipped this switch. She described him as a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Before this, she said she basically worshipped him, maybe literally, at his altar in his living room. And now she was a little scared, realizing that, oh, well, he has killed somebody before. And now this is kind of strange and, and she's just committed felonies. And so all these thoughts are kind of racing through her head. And she's just not really sure how this is all going to play out. 
But what is she going to do? It's not like she could go to the cops and tell them, oh, hey, you know, this cult leader guy uh, convinced me to go uh, steal $3 million from some casinos. Look, I mean, I said in the beginning she should have bailed on that, that deal. And the fact that she was into him and his altar and his period blood, you know, I just want to say as Dr. Phil would, how'd that work out for you? Mm, ain't that the truth. An Eyewitness News viewer led police to a garage rented by the suspects. That's where they found that empty Loomis van, Tall Chief's gun and belt, and a few dollar bills. The viewer had rented the garage to the male suspect in the case. Uh, last night, uh, watching Channel 8 News, uh, they showed his picture on TV, and I suddenly clicked in my head that it was a guy that you that they were looking for. Till this man came forward, police had wondered if Tall Chief had been kidnapped. Those police were trying to figure out what had even happened. The two flew from Las Vegas to Denver. Back in the apartment that Heather and Roberto had shared, investigators would find various documents that were left as countermeasures. No real indication of where the two were actually heading, but instead, these clues that were planted to hopefully frustrate the investigation and send the police and the FBI in the wrong direction. Within hours, Heather and Roberto would retrieve a change of clothes that they had previously stored in a motel, take a taxi to the train station in Denver, and then be on a train headed to St. Louis. Then they would make their way to New Orleans, and from there, the pair made it to Miami, which was their initial final destination. Three million bucks in Miami sounds great to me right now. Especially, I know how you feel about cold weather, so. Amen. Within a couple weeks, the writing was already on the wall. Roberto brought in another woman who, by virtue of not being a wanted fugitive, could go anywhere and pick up anything that the couple needed or wanted. But, as you can imagine, this so-called sex magician millionaire wasn't about to be monogamous anymore. No. Roberto and this new woman actually took the money and went ahead to St. Martin. Heather was alone for a bit, so what did she do? Well, I think she did what Bob would do. She had herself a little fun. But eventually, Roberto sent her their address in St. Martin, and she made her way there. And when she got there, Roberto and the new woman showed Heather her room, and it seemed like now she was going to be a third wheel to them. But after a little more time, the woman went back to Miami, and it was just Heather and Roberto in St. Martin. Things were seemingly not so bad. And then there was a curveball. Heather got pregnant. Oh, Lord. The two had been working on getting some fake travel documents, passports, and whatever else they'd need to go into another country. Eventually, Roberto was able to score some, and, and uh, the couple was able to make their way to Amsterdam. But as it is for so many people, Heather becoming a parent changed everything. Roberto was no longer the most important thing in her life. Now, her son was. And so, two months after he was born, Heather took her son and $18,000, and she left Roberto. She says that when she told Roberto, he didn't even try to stop her. He didn't care. And that hurt her, but I can't say any of us that are looking at this story from the outside are even remotely surprised by that. And that $18,000 that she took with her, as you can imagine, it didn't last so long. Heather had a baby to care for. She was a fugitive living under an alias in a foreign country. And so she had to find a way to make things work. She had to find a way to make ends meet. And so she ended up doing work as an escort for a while. Uh, she also did some work in a hotel and some other things. But th this life, the fugitive's life, was wearing her down. She felt isolated and lost. She had had enough. She decided it was time to stop running and to turn herself in. When asked why she didn't keep it up, after all, many years went by and the FBI hadn't found her. Frankly, they had no idea where she was. She had successfully evaded capture for about a decade. She said, Because you get very tired of running, this is not a life. Because I have been assuming something else that's not my life. If you're living in a prison mentally, then what is a box, a room? 
restricted privileges. It's nothing compared to what I've already been through. I truly feel like I'm setting myself free. So Heather made her way back to the United States. She contacted an attorney by letter to work out a deal for her and to help her navigate this process to get the best possible deal he could. He wanted to get her back in the country and to serve the least amount of time possible. But that also meant she would probably have to leave her now 10-year-old son behind in Amsterdam with a man that she had met and she said had become her real partner in life, the only father figure that her son had ever known. It may sound odd, but she insists that leaving her son to right this wrong is what's best for him. She's also said that she was doing it for him, that she felt like by turning herself in and surrendering, she could give him a better life, one that he deserves. Her son, by virtue of being born to a person who wasn't actually real, he doesn't have a real name and he basically doesn't exist. Right. And so her main goal, she said, was to, to obtain citizenship for her son, to really try to create something for him so he would have opportunities and wouldn't be stuck in the same limbo that she had created for herself. Her lawyer's plan was to get her back in the United States and to have her essentially kind of surprise surrender herself in Las Vegas. But that came with a lot of risks. She would have to make it to Las Vegas without being spotted and arrested. So she was going to have to travel internationally, make it through some airports. And this was after 9-11. This wasn't going to be easy. She had spent 12 years on the FBI's most wanted list. And after that, she turned herself into police in Las Vegas on September 15th, 2005. I feel like a winner. I feel like uh, it's probably an unusual thing to say to someone turning themselves into the federal government. But I feel, I feel excellent. Tall Chief's lawyers hope that her voluntary surrender and her allegations that she was brainwashed by Solis might convince federal prosecutors to take it easy on her. Her arrival at the courthouse Thursday morning certainly caught people off guard. Well, they knew exactly who she was as soon as we told them, but they weren't expecting her. She would ultimately plead guilty to one count of bank embezzlement, one count of credit union embezzlement, and one count of possession of a fraudulently obtained passport. And then on March 30th, 2006, she was sentenced to 63 months in federal prison five years of supervised release to follow, in order to pay $2,994,083.83 in restitution to the victims. Wait, what about Roberta, though? I mean, she's got to pay for her crimes. I get it. She did a bad thing. But what about Roberta? To this day, he remains in the wind. And Heather says she has no idea where he is. In the Netflix show, they use an actor to portray her because she wants to protect her appearance and identity as much as she can to supposedly keep Roberto from finding her or her son. But you know what they say. For every mystery, there is someone, somewhere, who knows the truth. Perhaps that someone is watching. Perhaps it's you. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.